Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Drive-by cinema, season three, episode ten. What a podcast that watches movies so you don't have to. And might drive to the convenience store to get you uh, a pack of cans. Also, this is my co-host and delivery driver, Paul. Hi, uh, welcome everybody to Drive By Cinema. And um, this I, is my I'm, co-host, Richard. Thank you. Yes, Paul. So, I know that you have uh, on the odd occasion done some delivery driving, and yeah. I think because you know, I, got, I got it from Alux.com. The uh, the YouTube site. I don't know why it's called Alux.com because all they ever do is, is, is produce videos for YouTube. The uh, the YouTube site uh, for future billionaires. Rich people don't look rich; they act rich. While you're buying that Gucci headband for eighty dollars, a rich person is delivering Amazon Flex. <laughs> Yeah, that's your typical millionaire behaviour, absolutely. Uh, so there you go. Paul. Yeah. We're coming to the end of a month, which historically, for the last, I don't know how long, quite a long time, has been uh, an important seasonal event for for Halloween. McDonald's, hasn't it? Now, I'm talking about McDonald's Monopoly promotion. It, well, it kind of half finished. I got it on my coffee cup, but I didn't get it on my... Chicken McNuggets this, this this Friday. Ah, well, no, it depends on how many McNuggets you buy, doesn't it? Not usually, no, I always get it. No, if, if you buy six McNuggets, you don't get tickets. I always have them. No. Well, that's, that's down to the franchisee, isn't it? They've just given you those. The McDonald's Monopoly promotion is where they give you little tickets representing pieces, no, cards, properties from the Monopoly board. Uh, in the UK, yeah. obviously, it's the UK Monopoly board, the London Monopoly board. And if you collect whole sets, then you win prizes. So, Paul, for the first time ever in doing the, occasionally doing the Monopoly McDonald's promotion, I, I thought it's a great opportunity to to swap our swapses. If you've got any dupes, we can swap. And we're bound well, to make some sets, Paul, aren't we? Because no. I've we'll got... all have Angel Islington. That's the well, only let's just blue compare. Let's printed. just compare, Paul. Let's just see what what we've got. I've I've nearly made some sets. I know you might amazing that it may seem. I I'm on the only need one for some of these sets. Well, one I haven't I haven't I haven't QR'd them into my account. What or whatever you do? Why? That's crazy. You get double because they're get still at the bottom of my coffee cup holder in my car, <laughs> where I put them when I peel them off. And I'm kind of ravenously eating my Friday McDonald's. But Paul, like for instance, do you have Old Kent Road? Because if you do, we've we've won a meal. Oh fuck! Look, it's a hundred thousand pounds I want, Richard. That's really all. Have you, have you got Mayfair or not? Just no, Paul. Have... I've got three park lanes. I've got no Mayfair. Yes, I've got four park lanes. All right, park lane. Although in reality, I think it's more expensive than Mayfair these days. Uh, for some reason, they've decided to give out. Lots of park lanes and no Mayfairs. I wonder why they've done that. The chances must be astronomical. Paul, what about the Mini, the electric Mini? All I need for that, and I'm happy to Regent share it Street. with you, by the way, is what? No, it's Bond Street. If you've got if you've got Bond Street, I've already got Regent Street. But it's going to be a lottery. It's going to be national lottery rules. Only one ticket. Only one ticket winner is is acknowledged. You know, those terrible stories of people divorcing each other and not sharing the money afterwards because they were the ticket holder. So do you, if you have Bond Street, Paul, though, we've won a car. What have you got apart from Fenchurch, Fenchurch Station? Apart from Fenchurch, I've got Marleybone. If you've, no, I've got King's Cross and Marleybone. So if you've got Liverpool Street, again, we've won 250 quid tickets. Wow. I'm sorry, I can't get excited about 250 quid. So yeah, there was a famous one in uh, the uh, Pepsi Cap one in Philippines, wasn't there? <laughs> where they, you know, they had a Pepsi Cap challenge where you collect, you know, the Pepsi Caps, and uh, there's like uh, some two dollar prizes, or maybe it's two peso prizes, you know, ten peso, fifty peso prizes, and a million dollars to be won, or <laughs> whatever, you know. I think no, sorry, it was uh, maximum score was fifty thousand dollars to be won, and they, you know, they made if they probably printed off a hundred of these or whatever. Uh, so that there were several 
a few big winners. And that was a life-changing amount in Philippines at the time. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, kind of. And uh, what happened was the bottle, the bottle press in the canning factory where they did these bottles and cans, uh, somebody just said, accidentally as it happened, uh, it, it was a process they did this by. Somebody said the machine to print out the winning number for the maximum, you know, $50,000 prize or whatever it was. And so instead of, a, you know, a batch of 100 being printed out, every bottle in the factory came out with this winning streak of numbers kind of thing uh, on the bottle cap. And, you know, people just couldn't believe how great, how, how wonderful Pepsi were. All these <laughs> effective Filipino, uh, you know, piece of, piece of millionaires in a matter of days, you know. They all waited outside the factory to be told you know where the money was coming it was, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people you know and of course the Pepsi boss had to come to the factory and say look you know we're going to give you £10 each kind of thing because that's a mistake <laughs> and there were riots and people were killed in the crush and oh god it's yeah a nightmare story really interesting I can't quite remember what it's called which city it was in it seems like in the McDonald's thing Paul like only one of the tokens really matters in each set yeah seems like that's, right. that's how they've done it Clever. so What's the point of having all the other ones if it's just one that you need to get and they're very rare? How difficult would it be to 3D print these? To 3D print them? Why would you yeah, 3D to, print them? I mean, 3D print these stickers. They're two-dimensional objects, mostly, Paul. I mean, well, just use a normal printer, right? Sure. Yeah, how difficult would it be to fake? Yeah, well, you, would, you need the special number on it, don't you? Oh, it's the number. We need to know the number. Could we, I mean, can we not just generate 100 million QR codes and get a robot to put them into the to, into the sign until we come up with the right number? <laughs> Exhaust the possibility space, I think. Yeah, brute force it. No. I, I mean, since you haven't tried the app, I've got to tell you that it, it only works it's very slow. Yeah. <laughs> Although it is great. It's the first time you've had an app where you can see what you've collected. I think it's long been needed in the McDonald's game. and I'm very Yeah, they've to long enjoy. needed to collect my email details, haven't they? That's right, yeah. You make it sound like a very cynical marketing exercise. <laughs> well, I don't understand. It's a good one. I really have to say, this has really caught me up. I really want to win the £100,000. And I don't know why, because I don't ever go in for lottery tickets or scratch lottery tickets. So I, there's something about this one. But you know, know, the McDonald's Monopoly game has also been dogged by fraud. There was at least one year where there was a big fraud case about it. You'd think that a competition of like of this kind wouldn't really survive that kind of scandal. You wouldn't do it again, but they, there we are, they're still doing it. And I was trying they're to work out, aren't they? How, do, how do you arrange this competition to work, given the way McDonald's operates? Like, okay, so suppose there's like one, I mean, there may be more, suppose there's only one, like one Mayfair ticket out there. Yeah. Is it on a normal roll of tickets that gets sent out at random to one of the franchise restaurants? I think by law it has to be, yeah. Right, so it could Quite be law. sitting there, and at the end of the month, at the end of the competition point, it could still be on a roll somewhere. Yes, absolutely, it probably will be, and probably be chucked out in the bin. Well, but yeah, but okay. So now, now imagine that you are a low-paid. I'm not going to say minimum wage. I don't know what they get paid. And you're in. You're working at McDonald's, and your manager says, "Oh, all those t- that ticket roll. You can shove that in the bin now." What yeah. What do you do with it, Paul? Right, well, I was given a similar option at Simon Jersey, who used to make uh, industrial industrial clothing at office office kits kits for you know for workers kind of thing. Well, the they had a competition. No, surely in the, in the, no, they were in a competition in the Ultimate industrial, industrial Estate off Accrington, and I was there on a temp contract. You know, I think I was more doughy and placid than the you know the other lads that were. They were all the same age. They were all like you know eighteen to twenty five on uh, on temp contracts. You know. One of the guys, one of the lads I was with, he was like a boxer, you know. He was this short, muscular kind of squat guy. He's probably like five foot eight. But he was a bit of, a, I wouldn't say a tear away, but he was a bit of a live wire. And he'd go and get stoned, uh, sleep on the boxes in the in the storeroom kind of thing. Be discovered. I, I got paired with him because, I, you know, I was this more docile person that did a bit of work but wasn't very bright kind of thing. Uh, and uh, so we were paired together and we got... Take some of the seconds we were going to sell at a some sort of uh, it was a disco or a, back in the day when nightclubs were right in the countryside, you know what I mean? Up a gravel track kind of like thing. warehouse so parties, it, yeah. Like it was like a converted Mercury's Club or a cricket club that had turned into a, a, a disco kind of thing, but it wasn't a nightclub, it was a disco. And they were going to have a sale up there for locals, kind of thing. We were told to set up the trestle tables, 
and uh, they carted up a whole van load, about 15 tonnes of jersey, Simon jersey wear, and we were told to put it on, you know, trust the tapes and, and then come back down again. Well, inevitably, we'd taken our knapsacks up with our, with our tuck-in and our, our thermos flats. And so he took the opportunity to, I don't know, how can I say this without incriminating the young fella? Uh, maybe some things found the way into his backpack. And, and then he, like, he, he kind of said to me, you, you know, you do the same too. And I was doing it, and then, and then I got, I got, I got really cold feet. As we were leaving, I stuffed what was in my backpack behind the radiator because <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that I didn't dare, didn't dare sort of take stuff. And we got the lorry, and our boss said, "Hey, make sure you've taken some uh, some stuff home yourself, yeah." <laughs> I was like, "Oh fuck!" Can I go back and get the stuff I was supposed to have nicked? So yeah, I mean, it was understood that. The kind of leakage we're talking about there, which is minimal percentage, would be perfectly acceptable. So then, uh, I, he kind of saw that my backpack wasn't bulging like like the other guy. So he, I, I think that earned me trust points. And so I then got a really easy job every Friday, which was to take the second, the big second seconds, like the thirds, like the ones with massive stitching problems, take them to the skip and score uh, a massive line with a, with you know with the, with sewing scissors down the back of them and ruin them so they couldn't be sold. So they they choose somebody they trust, I think, who's stupid enough and docile enough not to, not to show any level of entrepreneurship. <laughs> I I don't understand though. What stuff was it that this that you were taking? What would it be useful? Shirts, dress shirts, you know, but made for office and made for like uh, the warehouse. So you might have warehouse lab coats, warehouse overalls. Uniforms and office uniformed office shirts. You know, like people who work in Curry's wear those awful coloured purple shirts. Simon Jersey used to make that for the company. Okay. And so, you know, I would I would just slash about two thousand shirts on a Friday. And get paid handsome, handsomely for it. So it's it's a pretty good job actually. Those kind of jobs do not exist in the UK. Hey, Paul, it's time for the music, finally, so we can talk about this week's film. What do you think? Was there anything you wanted to say, Richard? Do you want to get a word in edgeways? I've said all that I need to say, Paul. It looks sadly yeah. as though we won't be winning any McDonald's prizes. Well, I will dig them out of the coffee cup holder and see if there's any potential pairs. But I very trials, but I very much doubt. You're highly sceptical. Hmm. Uh, here's the music. Coming up. Paul. Before we get started properly on this week's movie, the name of which was... The name of which was One Cut From or For the, the dead. dead. I'm not entirely sure which. Of the Dead. There you go. And before we go any bad, further, before we go any further, I've got to now bring up the mistake from last week. An egregious error that I made, which was that. Last week I said that this was a Korean movie. Oh, it was not it wasn't, a Korean apparently. Movie. No, it is a Japanese movie. So I am very sorry. I, I seem to have done this twice, and it seems to be like an almost racist Yeah, thing. you did this with Taiwanese and Thai. Indonesian, yeah. yeah I know. In my defence, I may be... a racism, yeah, he admits that. It's great, yeah. And I think the best defence is honesty, Richard. No, well done. Go on. When I, <laughs> where I discovered this movie was from a list of films... A list of films which warrant sticking through the opening se- uh, section because they reward right. you sticking with them. This movie certainly falls into that category. And I'm sure that described it as a Korean film. I may be wrong, ah. but I feel that I was misled. And I, I I must admit, though, I did not do any research to confirm what they said about the film. I just thought it sounded cool, had a brief look, and put it on a list and suggested it. But in my defense, I didn't investigate. I should have done. And it's Japanese, yeah. But what's weirder is that even after watching it, Paul, you still seem yeah. to think it was Korean. You told me it was yeah, Korean. But can you watch this movie and still think it's Korean? Question. I Especially, think so, yeah. You probably know one of one or other of those languages. I know both of and them. And yet now. you didn't notice that it wasn't in Korean. I didn't. I was actually reading the subtitles. Well, obviously I was reading the subtitles, but... 30, 40 minutes into the film, there's a title credit sequence in a script which clearly was not Korean script. It wasn't, though. Because no. Korean, which I think is called Hangul, is that right? Or is that yeah. 
the anglicization of Korean scripts. That would be Korean, yeah. It looks different from Japanese. It does. It does look different, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you would describe how it's different, but it is clearly different. So essentially, you, you, you're billing me as the least perceptive video uh, film reviewer ever. And, and there may be some truth in that, Rich. Well, you yeah. know these languages. How could you not have realised? <laughs> I think, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, you, you can be walking past a newspaper stand and you won't notice any newspapers unless your name is written on it. And then suddenly your name will jump out from your peripheral vision, won't it? It's that kind of thing. I mean, we filter. We actively filter uh, our, our perceptions, don't we? So I was focused on the... Uh, on the subtitles and the ambient kind of screams and whatnot, which are quite a lot. The filmmaking. And I wasn't really focused in on what they were saying, you know, because it was all, apart from the, the screaming and tonal quality, I think I was fo- focused in on, you know, the, the excitement and the visceral action contained in the dialogue. But as to what they were saying, I just, I just blanked it out. I mean, they do talk about the place that they're filming being a, an old Japanese army like place. Yeah, but you see, in Korea, yeah, though, that could that have been Korea. Entirely yeah. possible. Exactly, it did fool me for a bit. It was only until I saw the script, the writing, that I thought, "Hang on, that's not Hang that's on, not, Korean. not Korean." And it certainly isn't Korean. No, that makes a lot more sense about the way they were behaving and their manners. Actually. Oh wow! So, Paul, this film, yeah, did not play out in the way that I initially expected. No, no, this one's a real surprise. Absolutely. It goes meta on its it meta. It does go meta on its meta. It, it breaks was just... fourth after fifth after sixth wall, incredibly. <laughs> you know, it's like Hulk smashing through these performance walls. It's crazy, you know, uh, and it's also very, very funny. Uh, so it's not what it looks like when it starts. Not out. at all, no, because it was sort of billed as being a horror movie about yeah. people making a zombie movie and then getting attacked by real zombies. Yeah. Which in itself is a which funny is idea. what happens in the opening sequence. So the start yeah. of this film. You're looking at what looks like a really cheap horror movie with, you know, kind of cheap makeup effects as this guy is shuffling, shambling towards this terrified girl who's holding an axe. And she's obviously, like, sweet on the guy, but he's turned into a zombie and he's going to attack her. So in the end, I think she has to kill him, doesn't he? But it's a, it's a quite a stilted scene where he's slowly shuffling forward zombie-like. <laughs> and she's cowering in a corner with uh, with an axe. And as you're watching this, suddenly the director sort of... Choco-chan! Choco-chan, I love you! It's me! Don't hurt me! <laughs> Something like that. I can't yeah, she says she loves him before she slices him with the axe. And then the director stops and it's obvious that they're filming a scene and they're actors. And the director's not very happy. Someone says it's the 42nd take. He's obviously... The director's quite a diva. He's going to the actress and he's saying that, you know, don't do not do it as if, you know, make it real, not as if. They're filming this old yeah. machine room of a derelict factory or something. So at this point, what were your feelings? Were you thinking, we're going to watch a, mo- a documentary about making a zombie movie? Or we're watching a movie about, well, it's obvious we're watching a movie about... <laughs> that was clear. <laughs> About outtakes and that kind of thing, maybe you know. Or got, it, well, I mean, so it's kind of puzzling when you when you're going into them. It's interesting because I mean, he's really screaming at it in a way that I don't think directors would get get away with these days. So I was thinking, oh, what's it going to be? Some sort of horrid, you know, investigation into how nasty humans can be in competitive environments or something like that. So what were you thinking it was going to be, Richard? At that, you know, those first five. Bear in mind that I I was expecting a horror movie about people making a cheap, low budget horror movie. Oh, so it was on track. At this point, point, it's on track. But I did think this, and this is really interesting, and it's beautiful the way this film un- unrolls itself. You know, initially I'm thinking, well, yeah, this is really a low-budget horror movie that they're making because the makeup's a bit shitty. He's just like painted kind of grey with a bit of blood on his thing, really. Then the director pops in and cuts, and, you know, he does this bit, and he's obviously a diva. But I was thinking, wow, that director's really chewing the scenery. So, you know, yes. even on this level, even on the portraying filmmakers level, it seemed like it, it, this was going to be a difficult watch because he seemed like quite a poor actor. And of course, as we learn later, that's sort of true, right? <laughs> the person who, like, in in some ways seems the most sympathetic and interesting character now, which is his 
I think I, I, I thought she was like the assistant director, but it's a very small crew. I think actually she's yeah. the makeup artist, isn't she? She says, "That's right, yeah." Take thirty, thirty minutes. Let's go calm down. Uh, they all kind of split off and go and have a cigarette and stuff like that. Meanwhile, the the actor the playing the 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 bloke whose name I don't know actually, I didn't pick up his name very well, um, but he's complaining that the axe is real and they don't have any real props. And meanwhile, also the crew guy, one of the crew guys, is carrying buckets of blood up to the roof, which becomes important later because apparently his director wants it all up there. The two actors, the lead guy and the lead girl, are sitting down in the chairs and they're having their makeup touched up. And they're asking about what, how they find the location. And the makeup artist is explaining that it's rumoured to be haunted. And it haunted, used to be yeah. a Japanese soldier base used for human experimentation. And she gives this really good acting performance where she goes into ghost story mode and she starts you know, telling the spooky stories. And they hear a noise suddenly, which startles them. And they all look around. And then there's this really kind of awkward section where... They're practicing mock kung fu or self-defense. <laughs> I like this. I thought this... Because, I mean, they've been complaining... The director would be complaining about their acting. I don't know what's going on at this point. I'm thinking this is all, like, part of the movie kind of stuff. Yeah. Part of the yeah. movie as the movie is, so to speak. Which I'll explain later why that's, it's important to say what we're talking about there. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, he was right. You know, it was a bit kind of uh, manga, manga cutesy from the girl... I thought, wow, no, no, they are acting in quite a dramatic way now, but it's it's very stilted and strange, but maybe more effective. And I was I was evaluating how their acting had improved at this point, <laughs> which was the wrong. Thing I think to the do. actor guy had just said out of the blue, "What are your hobbies?" And she had explained, "No, oh, I like that's doing right. self defense." And she I do pom when I does, yeah, that's, that's right. This move, he grabs her from behind and she puts her arms in the air and bends bends at the knee and shouts pom, and pom. she's escaped. <laughs> Plot spoiler, she later uses this against She zombies. does, yeah. yeah. Ob- obviously, it comes in later, yeah. The guy outside, the VFX guy who's carrying the blood, I think he might be the assistant director, actually, but he's, like, having a cigarette, and suddenly a zombie comes up behind him. I think we might have seen him before on the crew. I'm not sure about that. He turns around, he says, oh, look, you've been painted up like a zombie. But suddenly <laughs> this zombie guy vomits in his face. <laughs> and then goes to bite him cut to back inside where they hear all this sort of noise and commotion and a severed that- forearm gets thrown in from oh yeah that's right I was kind of confused here were we supposed to think we were still on the camera that they were shooting with or were we viewing as a fly on the wall from a, from a privileged perspective i.e. you know when that guy vomits in his face are, are we supposed to think that that's on the film or that's us looking at the movie set after action is over. I wasn't really clear at that point what... Obviously, the name of the film One Cut of the Dead comes from the fact that all of this sequence is being done in one cut. There's no cuts, actually. One cut, so, yeah. In fact, when I said cut to outside, I don't mean that. What happens is the camera that we're looking through turns around from the bit that the, that the makeup artist and the two actors are in, goes through the door outside and sees the VFX guy being attacked by a zombie and then it turns back to see their response and so it's as if we're looking through another camera because we were watching the camera that was filming the first movie (laughs) we were watching that happen and we were seeing that crew filming the actor and the actress you know having their zombie moment and then when they shout cut we see the camera that they're filming the film on like you know go for a break and put the camera down and walk away and all the crew split up. So it's as if they were filming a making of film and that's what we're looking through the eyes yes. of, right? That's the impression that you get, which is really interesting and clever because there's one point later on where the director, everything is going to shit later on, Helena Hankart, and the director in his usual understated style looks straight down the lens at you and says, keep filming giving you the idea that you've been filming all along and you're now the yes. cameraman. Really, really interesting. But, I mean, we learn later, later why that happens, which is even more interesting. <laughs> yeah, so we go back and we turn around, we see a seven arm being thrown into the room from the outside, followed by that VFX guy who's now got one arm missing and blood all over him. 
they realize that he's dead and they check oh my god his arm's missing they, initially they think it's all part of a joke and he's been put into makeup but they go oh no yeah. he really does have his arm missing oh shit he really is dead now here is a view you've got two options either you think he's really dead and or you think this is part of the this is part of the uh, the script kind of thing and i went for the first one so i don't know well they sell it don't they because the makeup artist goes yo he's he's really dead and he's really got no arm and yeah. at that point, the the first zombie comes in through the door. They manage to push it out, and it's all very frantic. You know, there's fighting going on. It is. We, now, we as the a, camera for, guy, are moving around. You know, for a zombie that off camera has apparently ripped off somebody's jo- uh, arm from the from the shoulder joint, <laughs> doesn't really come in with a lot of gusto or the same account, same apparent uh, tenacity to eat humans, does he? But then, but then the one-armed crew guy who was dead now gets up from the dead because he's a zombie, obviously, <laughs> and he chases them. They lead it out through the factory through another door, at which point the director shows up with a camera. They're obviously furious with him. What the hell is going on? And he explains. And he about screams him. back at them with good measure. Basically, he gives what he, he gives what he gets, doesn't he? Yeah. Does he, is, is this where he delivers his monologue about you've got to carry on? I want this all. He wants it on film. Yeah. All, and he starts yeah. filming them. Um, now, meanwhile, one of the crew, I, I think he might be the sound guy when they're normally filming, a guy with a white headband on, called Yamago, I think. Uh, he, yes. He's been, throughout the previous fights, he was weirdly just sitting down in the background, kind of ignoring the action. <laughs> Which is an amazing detail, because I thought, oh, what do I write about that? Why is that happening? That's weird. It doesn't, to, it doesn't seem to scan with the the action of film at all. See, like he was totally detached from everything. But suddenly he panics and he runs outside, even though they're all saying, He does, yeah. Don't go outside. That's a really good moment. It really added to, you know, the terror. Okay. Because, you know, I've bought this wholeheartedly that, you know, what we've watched, you know, from our fourth wall is a real zombie attack, so to speak, a filmic zombie attack on a movie set that coincidentally is is, you know, occupying a haunted factory where zombies were reputed to appear from. So, yeah, so he just rushes out screaming. You think, what's going on there? He's breaking down. It was really good and really fractious, actually. This is the point where the director turns straight to the camera and says, keep filming. Anyway, they they work out that they can get out by the car that they came in. And I think she's called now the the, uh, makeup um, lady. She grabs the axe that they've been using in the film because it's a real axe, as we've discussed. The director can be heard banging on the door outside, the other door, and they go around to open it. And he's there with the headband guy, who's now a zombie. He throws him in at them and starts filming, like action kind of thing. <laughs> and now he's furious and beheads him with an axe. And, and all of this stuff is, again, it's all happening in one take. So we're not seeing cuts. You know, it's sort of off camera. She swings the axe, you you know, you hear it. And then you look around, there's like a head rolling across the ground. Really, really cleverly done in one take. The director is running, he's filming this close up. So the actor guy, who's clearly mad with the director for putting them in this danger and throwing a zombie at them, whacks a director over the back of the head with a piece of wood. You know, lays him out totally. They all run for it, run to the car. And as they're running, we're following the the two actors and the makeup artists now. And there's blood on the lens from all this action. And the they wipe it. And I thought, oh, if, if you wanted to do one of those fake one-cut films, this would be where you would cut, right? As you were wiping the lens. Yes. Because, you know, this is a bit of a fashion, isn't it, lately, to have one-cut films. 1917, Sam Mendes' World War One film, was presented as if it was one-cut. Was it? Yeah. Wow. But it's not really. It has false... It has hidden cuts. What you do, usually, is a bit of... You pan the camera past a bit of foreground, like a pillar or, you know, a doorway or something. And as uh, the swipe right. occurs, you can insert an invisible cut. And they do that in many different ways through the film to give the impression. You'd also do it in a genuine, genuine one pan, uh, one cut pan, wouldn't you? When you want to, you know, maybe rearrange stuff, you go past something solid so people could run behind it and that kind of thing. Even if you were going to continue filming, yeah, yeah. So I mean, now I would say, doesn't mean that Sam Mendes' film is not also amazing, and that there aren't very yeah. long sequences in there that don't have a, a genuine cut in them. But the whole film is perhaps a bit of a stretch. So, uh, Shortcuts, of course, by Robert Altman, 1991, can't remember when it was, was famous for its entry uh, one-cut 
Yeah. And, and Zoom wasn't it? Eight minutes, I think. And th- that back in the day was incredibly long, an eight minute short. I mean, if you think about it, if you're doing that, it has to be prepared like a stage play. You know, everything yeah. has to happen. Everyone has to hit their mark, as well as the camera. You know, the camera doesn't have any setup time. It has to rehearse the choreography of where it's going to be all the time. So the camera operators are very much part of that whole choreography. On a one, on a two, on a three, on a four. Yeah. One, yeah. on a two, on a three, on a four. Yeah, it has to be done by metronome, doesn't it, basically? Well, at least Although I noted that that is where you would put a false cut in. Apparently, that's not what, you know, there are no cuts in the opening sequence of this, which is like 30 minutes or more, I think. It is all one uh, shot, genuinely, which is... So I, by the end, I bought it. I was like, this is a fly-on-the-wall documentary of a cheap horror movie. <laughs> that actually isn't. It's a cheap horror movie pretending to be a cheap horror movie. It's a fly-on-the-wall documentary about a cheap horror movie pretending to be a cheap horror movie that's invaded by zombies. That was a script. But actually... It's been invented by real zombies. It's all gone wrong. I bought all that. You know, I was sure. into all that. Cameraman Entire- rubs the blood off, and we follow the three to the car. They get in the car, oh, I love but they realise that they don't have the keys, and that suddenly one arm guy arrives on one side of the car, and they <laughs> can the see handbag. he's got a bum bag over his shoulder or something, and they know that the keys oh, to the vehicle are in there. <laughs> So more slashing ensues, I think, doesn't it? They open the door and the girl actress jumps out to fight him. We follow, the camera guy follows the girl and one arm fighting. She's trying to get the bag off him. And the camera falls to the ground, actually. And it's we're on the, on our side watching the fight, which is quite protracted. But she struggles with the one arm guy. Eventually, she manages to get the bag off, off him. And then the camera guy stands up and starts running running after her. Uh, she flees, she goes down, she finds an outhouse down some stairs through a tunnel. A zombie blocks her path and she tries to go back the other way. The male actor shows up behind the zombie and they get away after he hits it and stuff. And then now is back in the factory and she lets him in through the door just in time. And they got the key, but the girl, has in all of this fighting and stuff, she's now got a cut on her ankle that's bleeding. Now it's suspicious that she's been bitten. She's going to turn into a zombie. She's holding an axe as well, so she fights the male actor who's defending his girlfriend, obviously. And then she chases the girl as she climbs up onto the roof. She goes outside up onto the steps onto the roof. Uh, and now is chasing after them. And do, using her like martial arts, she's kicking <laughs> zombies out of the way, flying kicks all the way up. Who does she meet at the top of the roof? She meets her, uh, her coal. Her coal the male actor and now are up on up on the roof there's a fight and now ends up with the axe in her head uh, the, meanwhile the actress she's scared that she really might be a zombie so she's telling him to keep away from her keep away he seems to slip and fall at about this point uh, and she runs down again she finds herself in a shed and she's ah, that's cr- right. crouching down and hiding there was a blood pentagram painted on the outside of the shed as well and she looks down at her bloody ankle and she peels like the dried blood off it. It might, it might be fake blood for all we know from the movie. Or a plaster even, yeah. Some but it's clear thing. that she hasn't been bitten. And she's almost certainly fine. So now she she wants now to find her boyfriend. But as she's hiding there in the shed, these legs arrive. These sort of pallid, <laughs> livid looking legs arrive. You're, so we're just seeing as if we're hiding with her, with the camera guy. And she she's cowering in terror as they... As they drop something and walk away they don't drop anything I think they just show up in in screen and they you know she freezes and presumably we as a cameraman freeze uh, as trying not to give ourselves away to the zombie and then after a few moments it turns around and walks away doesn't it she leaves the shed after the zombie's gone she finds an axe just lying you know around outside the shed how lucky she said how lucky for me to find and she sees I think he's called Co isn't he the actor apparently I did write his name down uh, she sees him on the stairs to the roof. She chases after him. She goes up to him. But when he turns around, he's been turned into a zombie. Oh, in an exact sort of repeat of the opening scene of the movie they were making, the zombie that is her boyfriend is now shambling towards her. She's cowering. I'm pausing every time she says, yeah, I love right. you. She's pausing, really. These awkward, stilted moments, actually, when it all stops. Oh, there's, And there's <laughs> that weird moment where now... 
who was the uh, uh, the makeup girl who had an axe in her head earlier on on the roof. She sort of pops up right in front of her. <laughs> it charges again. Yeah. <laughs> they both scream and then she falls down again. Uh, eventually, of course, she has to behead Ko, her boyfriend, saying, I love you. And the director pops up and berates her, tells her to follow the script. And she's furious with the director. She lunges at him with the axe. And they sort of run behind a little rooftop outcropping thing. And you just see her slashing the axe at him and blood spurting up. Beautiful sound effects there. Lovely squelches. She walks around to another part of the roof. We see from... a, And she's got these amazing... She's got blood all over her face. And her eyes are now kind of black with... Uh, either with blood in them or anger or something. It's really moody. And at this point, we sort of see a shot. The camera has kind of climbed up on a bit of raised roof and looks down. We get some sort of wobbly pan, don't we? And we're seeing her standing in the middle of a blood pentagram that has been drawn on the roof. Presumably the reason why the blood had been taken to the roof earlier. And we get a title card. And it's now 36 minutes into the film. It's more like a TV TV series length than a movie. Exactly, yeah. And we haven't had a single cut of this entire entire 36 minutes we get credits rolling she's looking at the camera and then we get cut yelled from the camera and then we see a caption that says one month ago we see the director that we've been looking at throughout this filming another rooftop scene with a guy in a wheelchair where they're trying to get him to cry we're now in the realm of the filmmakers and we're now following the documentary style like you say this particularly this director who describes himself as fast, cheap, but average. Yeah, that's one of the best lines of the movie. Now, I'm not sure at this point, does he meet up pretty soon with the with the TV studio executives who are led by uh, a small, wizened old lady? That's right. It's not one of the first scenes. She's, yeah. she's like the executive producer, I think. And she's got a producer guy with him who's a younger, sort of thrusting TV executive guy. And she she pitches this idea to this director. <laughs> she wants a, a zombie film uh, where there's a, people filming a zombie film, but they get attacked by real zombies. She wants it done in one take, and she wants it broadcast live on TV. <laughs> this is interesting. I mean, th- there is history of this in TV. I mean, Emmerdale and Coronation Street used to be shots. And broadcast live, didn't they? It was all, you know, although they had different scenes. Essentially, it was all, you know, done live in the in the in the thirty minute slot. And up to this day, Brazilian and Mexican soaps are, uh, they are performed live. I mean, the actors get the script ten seconds before they say it. That's the first time they've ever heard the script. Uh, they get it in an earpiece and they say the lines that are fed to them. About 10 seconds... Well, they have to learn the lines and then say it 10 seconds after they've learned it live on set. So, I mean, there's lots of precedents for this kind of very, very uh, fast to celluloid approaches to making making uh, making TV and movies. Well, these days, usually, these kind of one-take or done-as-live uh, episodes are kind of... are usually novelty episodes of long-running series, aren't they? So yes. When modern people realise they can't do it, as well as people used to be able to do it, yeah. Uh, the combination of Emmerdale ones were famous. They did one about 10 years ago, didn't they? And it was like, oh gosh, how many bloopers could they fit into half an hour? Was, it, was it ER did it? That, did they? I, th- I think so. And Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps did one as well like that. Wow. Uh, there's been lots of episode, uh, series that have done this kind of thing. You can see, for actors, it's very much like doing a stage production. And I think yeah. a lot of actors enjoy that kind of challenge. I think for the actors, it's easier than it is than for the directors and camera people. Isn't in some it? ways, yeah, because they're yeah, they're, they're just in an extended kind of kind of improvised. Well, well, it can be improvisational if something goes wrong, I suppose. But they're in an extended scene, aren't they? And yeah. they've they, they've memorized the whole thing, the whole piece. They're and just, it's stuff they've done before on stage, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's not like they've never done this before. But for yeah, TV crew and directors, I think it is really challenging potentially uh, to do drama that way. So he thinks that it's, they're joking. He can't believe that they would even suggest this. Obviously, that's in, it's impossible. You know, he gives he decides to give it a go. 
Uh, there's a, a story of his family life. Now, he's married to the woman who we recognise as the actress playing the makeup artist. The makeup artist, yeah. And they've got a young daughter as well. He's also trying to get into the industry. We see her trying to encourage a girl to cry without using eye drops later. <laughs> she gets thrown off set. She gets fired, she's disturbing yeah. people. So she's obviously gone through a terrible teens. You know, she's late teenager, early 20s. Uh, it seems that she dotes on one particular young male actor. That's like her idol. Her heartthrob. That she adores. And it's obvious that her and dad are not enjoying the best relationship. It's rather strained. Uh, at one point, he's there crying over photos of when they were pally, you know, going hiking in the mountains. They're on his shoulders when they were, when he when she was younger, yeah. And we, we recognise the heartthrob that she loves as the guy who ends up being the actor uh, playing the zombie yeah. in the in the movie. Not playing the zombie, yeah. Playing the actor playing the zombie. The male lead. The yeah, male yeah. lead, yeah. yeah. Co, I think it's called. We next see like a, a table reading uh, where they've assembled the cast to read through the script as they do. We're learning about all the characters. So the young actress is, I think, a pop star breaking into acting. Her management team have got all these kind of restrictions on what they'll let her do, you know. Meanwhile, you know, the, the young actor guy is, uh, you know, he thinks a lot of himself, doesn't he? And the director of photography is the older guy who we saw as the first zombie biting, the ripping the arm off that, that guy. He's got an That's alcohol right. problem, hasn't he? He's drinking heavily during during the rehearsal. <laughs> and he's expl- you know, he explains to the director, you know, why he drinks so much at one point, doesn't he? But he he's always got sake in his water bottle or something, isn't he? Or something stronger maybe. So yeah, so it's it's a raggle taggle bunch. Uh somewhat dysfunctional, but you probably say dysfunctional in a healthy communicative way. Uh and some, you know, oddball characters that should probably get in the uh in the film industry. Right, so they're just rehearsing their script, okay? It seems that although, you know, the produ- the director has advertised himself as fast, cheap and average, he sees this as his golden chance, doesn't he? He's putting real effort into this. He really wants it to come come together. And he sees it, you know, maybe more as art than as TV. Uh, certainly his male lead is quite haughty about what he will and won't do. And uh, his female lead also refuses to have zombies be sick on him. So there's all kinds of problems happening there, isn't there? And we see rehearsal. we see the camera guy. That is not the camera guy that we see on screen, but the guy who is holding the camera for the one take in the in the show, as it were. He's rehearsing the moves, as we explain. You have to, I guess, in this, with them in the rehearsal room, and he's talking to his assistant, who's younger and fitter, and you know, quite ambitious. Clearly, uh, he says that you know, doing one take with a handheld is going to kill him. He's obviously got back trouble. And he's always having to sort of crouch over and run with the camera after the, the actors. And she's saying, you know, well, I can do it. You know, no, I will do this. <laughs> he's like insisting, isn't he? So it's clear now to us that the whole thing was, a, you know, a major conceit. You know, the uh, the Russian doll's approach to this, this, this uh, whole event is that, it, you know, it's all very, very meticulously or, or trying to be meticulously planned by this, by this really small production team. Yeah. And we're also seeing, though, that a lot of the things that we experienced during the film in the first 30 minutes are being explained now by plot points in, in the making <laughs> of. So, for instance, the guy with the headband, he is asking all the time about where the toilet will be on location. Oh, you know, we'll have portaloos, you know, don't worry, kind of thing. But he wants to know where they are. He's clearly got IBS or some condition. Yeah. The main camera I'm talking about, the fact, you know, he can't hold the camera for long. He's back problems. Uh, I think that becomes relevant. Now, the daughter it? figures out that the her heartthrob has been cast, and she sort of persuades uh, Mum to ask Dad to let her go on set or go on, go to the shoot so she can... Which, reluctantly, <laughs> in order to prove the relationship, he agrees to, I think. But kind of tells her, hey, stay out of the way and don't mess up like you messed up on the previous set. Where you got chucked off. And they found this great location, this abandoned factory as well, that they've scouted out. They go there and they start setting up. And then they hear that there's been an accident, some kind of car accident. And the makeup girl and the guy who's supposed to be playing the director in the movie... Yeah, can't make it. Yeah, they've been delayed, they can't get there. But they're supposed to go on live. You know, they can't wait and film it later. Isn't it bank managers and their keys that are always carried separately? 
What is it that you're that never go in the never go in the same car together? Is it prime minister of advice? Well, it's true of it's true of any company, isn't it? That there's key man dependency stuff, and they're not supposed to go in the same plane, that kind of thing. Travel together, yeah. So they have to they have to understudy, right? They have to understudy. They decide that the director of the whole thing is going to be the director of the fake movie. Yeah, they said, look, we're two hours from Seoul or wherever it is. We're two hours from major centres, city centres. Okay, we can't get anybody, even the understudies, out here in time. It's going to have to be people here. They right decide now. that his wife, who apparently used to be an actress, but seemed it seemed like she stopped acting because she got too involved in the roles. <laughs> some, some, uh, yeah, some, uh, some method acting <laughs> involvement issues that spilled out into into out into the set in terms of anger management, we'd imagine, or something like that. It's described in very general terms, but we get the idea. So reluctantly, the. Director guy agrees that his wife is the only person really. She knows all of the script back to front. She has to play the makeup artist. That's what they're going to do. You know, they, the show has begun, and you see the guys like in the vision mixing sort of thing. Director's kind of booth are watching the whole thing unfold, and they say, oh, the, "The director's improvising." <laughs> and meanwhile, the older the director of photography guy, the older actor, is already drunk and staggering around. <laughs> he's really drunk. I mean, he's blind. He drank drunk. the sake that the producer gave him all as a sort of a wrap-up present, didn't he? Yeah. Having said, you know, I've quit. You know, I'm not going to touch that <laughs> stuff again for me and my daughter's relationship because he's got daughter problem, daughter relationship problems too. I'm just not going to, not going to uh, touch it. I've been watching on TikTok recently, uh, sort of uh, the lifestyle, the life story, and sort of redramatization of an alcoholic. He's recovered now. What he's saying, you know. Alcoholics never recover. And so he's talking about those 10 years where he was recognised he had a problem, was going to therapy and just, you know, uh, ignoring what his partner was saying, ignoring what the therapist was saying and hiding alcohol in the most unusual ways. Because, of course, once you're at therapy and the the partner's told by the therapist to intervene, uh, people check up on you, you know, the interventions that they see if you're carrying hidden alcohol. So he had an amazing one the other night or so, which was that he took uh, a Tic Tac box, and when you fill it with vodka, right. it looks completely clear. Okay. Yeah. And so you put that, but now your partner's going to start investigating, you know, and start shaking that. But he was really clever. He, he was a stage decoration. He would put like a peel, orange peel over the top of it, sprinkle some breadcrumbs around it, and then just have other props to distract. So check this coffee, there's nothing in that. Check this orange juice, there's nothing in that. I haven't injected it into the oranges. And in the meantime, <laughs> his tic-tac of vodka is there as rubbish. It looks like it's been finished. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so it's a real problem. I mean, like, they do say alcoholics never recover. So he has a lapse. Yeah. The DOP guy has passed out drunk with a minute to his cue. And this is the explanation for the really <laughs> awkward bit in the factory, where uh, after they talked a little bit about the rumours about you know why they'd chosen this location and the hauntings and stuff there's awkward pauses and you know the 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 lead guy asks the makeup artist about hobbies it's because the 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 supposed interruption by the director of photography presumably as a zombie is delayed because he's passed out so what's great here is we we kind of get another camera at this point don't we we kind of get another camera step back at times where we're looking at the cameraman who originally was so it was supposed to be like, you know, found footage or, you know, live footage. And we're seeing that whole reenactment. So it kind of takes us out into the distance and makes us realise, you know, what's going on here. We're actually seeing how all this occurred in the comic moments that made some of the best moments. In the For movie. instance, they sort of revive him as quickly as they can and they, you know, get his makeup on and stuff and they sort of stand <laughs> him up. They stand him up like a dummy, crouched behind him. And they kind of throw him at the crew guy who's going to get his arm bitten (laughs) off. And the vomit is real, because this guy is obviously passed out drunk and vomiting. (laughs) So the revulsion of the other guy is completely genuine. (laughs) It's really, really, yeah, it's very convincing, because he just can't believe it. But you also see what's really cool is how they get him into makeup really quickly, how they put a fake false arm you know, arm ripped off, prosthetic on him quickly, and yeah. you know they've got the the severed arm that they throw into the uh, into the, the the factory building. 
So I, I'm jumping ahead here, but the drunk guy, I mean, he sobers up a little bit towards the end. But he comes round at some point. He's like, oh, oh gosh, he just got, he's, oh, right, okay, it started already. And uh, <laughs> he's supposed to attack them. It's later in the flea scene that we've already described, so I guess it's not jumping ahead, where they're fleeing through the grass. And he's supposed to attack them, but instead he tries to do drunken kung fu on them. <laughs> and it's just the funniest movie. A movie about this zombie, like, just doing, doing kung fu in such a drunken way that it's completely ineffectual I just it tickled me completely but anyway and they're writing notes to the cast telling them to improvise you know to, you know stall for a bit I, th- I think they improvise a bit where they try and get cell phone reception and stuff of course I mean this happens often in TV studios I did a little bit of amateur sort of TV broadcasting when I was a teacher in Korea uh, I mean Korean schools are amazing. They've got their own, they have their own hardwire TV station kind of thing. Had a whole TV network within the school. And they said, hey, do you want to become like, you know, the, the TV presenter and the person that runs a TV studio? I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And so we used to do like a 30-minute broadcast every every Thursday, I think it was. And literally, you know, you've got these 12-year-old kids just running around with, with bits of cardboard scribbled on stuff, you know, waving it behind the camera at you because that's all We see that the headband guy who was sat down through a lot of this scene, is suffering from, obviously, terrible cramps because he needs to get to a porta potty And he keeps trying to get up and some of the crew say, no, you can't, you know, sit down. So eventually, eventually they let him go and they realise that they're going to have to bring him back as a zombie. So they grab his prosthetic severed head and headless body from the... (laughs) <laughs> the pile of prosthetics they've got and you know they shove him back in when, when he's been to the toilet they had to put his makeup on literally while he was squatting down and having a shit in fact he couldn't make it to the portal party because he couldn't get there in time it's quite a comical toilet humour scene we see the scene where they're running to the car later on what's happening here is as the lead actress jumps out of the car and fights the guy for the bag with the key in it the camera guy's back has finally gone out and he sort of falls to the ground in agony uh, but he, he's pointing the camera in the right direction but it's on its side and so you know he's obviously he can't carry on anymore so his assistant picks up the camera and the funny thing about this is throughout the sort of preparation she'd been advising him to use all these like crash zooms and zoom in and out on the zombies to make them seem, you know, weirder and scarier. And he thinks that's stupid and lame. <laughs> but as soon as she picks it up, you, you realise as you remember the scenes, that all those scenes with the zombies chasing them after that point, there's all these crazy zooms happening on the zombies. <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's brilliant detail. So have we pointed out all the things that are there accidentally because things are going Not wrong? Not yet, because the other thing that happens is the director's wife in the role of the makeup artist, is now lost in the role, right? She's now totally into yeah, That's it. right, yeah. The reason she's been prohibited from movie sets becomes apparent. So she, yeah. that's why she goes crazy at the girl with the cut on her leg and starts chasing her with the axe. That really wasn't, I don't think, in the script. So when the director comes in and says, wow, that's, now you're really acting with that reaction, this is all ad-libbed and is completely It's also the explanation of why the director turned to the camera and said, keep shooting. It's because keep, keep things shooting, were going yeah. very wrong, right? And the, the crew in the back, back room were about to sort of pull the plug and put up the you know technical difficulties <laughs> screensaver, you know, and stop the whole thing. Card, whatever it's called, yeah. What's it called? Like, that kind of card. Test card type thing, isn't it? The test car so thing, that yeah. instruction wasn't to us or the cameraman, really. It was to the, the director to tell them to carry on going. You know, they're going to improvise their way out of this. As his wife is chasing after the lead actress, he's told all the zombies to stop her, whatever it takes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so she's using her martial arts, her kung fu, to kick them. Pom. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. <laughs> she's pumping her way through the set. Uh, it's so The funny. only thing that didn't work for me although it's set up to be a big dramatic finish, I suppose, is during all of the mayhem, oh, they've knocked the crane they over. break the crane, yeah. yeah. It was needed to do the crane shot, a high-level shot, uh, looking down on the lead actress as she's standing in the blood pentagram with blood eyes and stuff. They've knocked that off the roof completely, and they improvise, apparently, and they build a human pyramid out of zombies and get the camera person at the very top 
to shoot those scenes. Whereas, actually, the other thing that they do at the end of the film, once this is once this is all panned out and we see that they've made it to the end and improvised their way through this, sort of the closing credits, we see them doing the making of the making of, and we see them, you know, how they actually filmed it all, which is also brilliant. Oh wow! I kind of might have skipped. It's at the very bit. end, during you know, during the credits, it's not very long. In reality, they the way they got that shot, the crane shot at the end, was they just had a pair of stepladders. <laughs> it seemed like building a human pyramid was a little bit cheesy, but you know, I, I guess you got to give it to them for their finale, you know. And it, it does result in this cute shot at the end of all these kind of actors in zombie makeup, you know on the hands and knees in a human pyramid style thing and they're all working together finally cooperating through serendipitous events it's a very kind of Asian conclusion isn't it it's not a Hollywood ending but it is a stereotypical Asian Asian cinema ending it's a very upbeat movie isn't it because they they make it through the show they deliver a great piece of, of work they keep saying don't they this is a TV show not art you know as the director's getting into it and stuff and his daughter who had been in the control booth throughout had come up with some great ideas to fix the, the problems and it encouraged them not to not to can the whole thing and put the, the the technical difficulties screen up or anything sure when there was an insurpassable problem in terms of who was available to say a line she said well let's jump to this part in the script yeah, kind yeah. of thing so uh, she kind of saved it all didn't she with her gumption uh her extroversion and her straightforwardness uh, so yeah, kind of a very much like Asian similar conclusion is we should accept people as they are, and there's a use for everybody in life. We can all contribute to the hive, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, I loved it. I mean, this moves so fast. We got three movies in one, really, if you think about it. We got kind of like the first thirty-minute TV show, which I thought on its own stood well. People say you got to wait wait the thirty minutes to enjoy this. I really enjoyed this as a you know a thirty-minute uh, zombie special on TV. It was really good. A nice little twist. I think that's something on its own. Okay. Then we get the backstory, their backstories for like 20 or 30 minutes. And then we get the replay of the filming, but this time from a second elevated position and perspective. Uh, so you get three one, three of the price for one. It doesn't stop moving. There is, as you said, there are so many ideas. And I love the way they've taken the time to tie all those little moments in and make them appear in the dialogue before we see them eventualize. Yeah. Okay. So the drunken guy, uh, the, the over immersive actress, uh, the guy with the irritable bowel syndrome, okay, all these kind of things. Uh, the reason why she discovers an axe in the shed, kind of thing, all that was really, really, really well tied together. And more than anything, it's super, super funny movie. Rich, what I you agree. Think? It really pulls the number on you, though, doesn't it? Because if you were expecting like a horror movie for Halloween, you're going to find that you're watching a comedy drama at the end of the day. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's so cutely executed. Uh, it's difficult not to like this movie. You normally do this bit, Paul, but this movie was made for a budget of about, I think, $25,000? $25,000, And yeah. made $25 million. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's a first in cinematic history. I'm not sure it is. Maybe there are some movies that we didn't record uh, their costs and takes, okay? But yeah, a thousand times production cost box office is virtually, well, it is, it's unrecorded, unheard of, yeah? It's it's a record break because apparently I think a lot of the actors and crew may have been on a I think it was a student project effectively so they were paying their wow. student fees to be in the movie. Effectively. It's an internship. Wow. So rather than yeah, so you know the the film was making money by the power of it? Goldman Sachs, <laughs> by the power of explosive modern work practices. We are here, really Amazing. very creative and and really well done and. Quite thought-provoking in many ways. So, yeah, this is a real disruptor, isn't it? You know, if you can make a movie this good, this convincing for $25,000, we have to say, you know, why are Marvel movies costing a billion <laughs> and a half to make, you know? Because, I mean, it's better. for me, this was more involving and in many senses more exciting than a Marvel movie and certainly more engaging uh, and more thoughtful and, and did more to provoke me. So... So, yeah, I mean, if you can do this for $25,000, why not? When I say I don't know historically if it's likely that this is the biggest, you know, take it, box office takings to production cost ratio ever. Uh, if you look at those two first Lancaster movie makers, Kenyon and I forgot the other guy's name. And what they do is they hop around the Lancashire Mills, yeah, and go and take photos of, you know, 
it'll take uh, street street scenes of people coming out of the mill. And then they take like a street scene of a tram coming down, you know, the, the plusher New High Street in the same in the same town. Uh and that's they do they do fifteen minutes work. And then, you know, they put posters up around the churches and around, you know, the whatever shopping centres and the and the movie said movie 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 theatre itself and say, you know, this weekend, come and watch yourself or come and watch your mates or come and watch your family on on screen. Yeah. And it was a huge draw, you know, they draw thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the week, you know, maybe the whole half the town will go and watch it, you know. It was a huge event and I'm pretty sure that their their takings were gigantic also. Because then once they've done that film, they come around the next year and put it on again. Just as many people will come to watch one more time. Because, of course, people weren't used to seeing themselves on, on, on film. And they weren't really used to movies at that point. You know, it was like 1910 or something like that. So, But, yeah, apart from, like, very exceptional circumstances like this, in the in the history of modern cinema, there hasn't been a movie that's taken so much from such, you know, from such minimal capital. Although it is obvious that they did more than $25,000 work here. I mean, there's a lot of work gone into this, and a lot of it, as you say, is unpaid labour. So, let's score it, Paul. Yes, acting amazing. I can't really fault the acting. Brilliant. When it was bad acting, it wasn't that bad. When it was good acting, pretending to be bad acting, it was amazing. And when it was just good acting, it was amazing. I'm going to score it a ten for acting. I really haven't seen I, the wife. She's such everything she does is just. She was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I fully agree. As you say, yeah, even the bits where you think, oh, that's not very good acting, it turns out that that was not supposed to be very good acting. (laughs) It's amazingly good, bad acting, amazingly good, bad, badly acting, good acting, you know, it's just really good. The female lead, you know, she's just so, so sort of manga kind of cutesy. Uh, And when she does break into real tears, which are acted, of course, it's just that transition is brilliant you know it's, it's a film that's in love with filmmaking as well which is what's so nice yeah so for acting yeah i'll give it a, a, a nine uh plot i mean i can't like every every scene is sewn together okay every thread is tied up in the three sections okay uh the spotlights i'm not sure what the technical term is this you know when we, when we spotlight something that's going to come the foreshadowing later. is what you're thinking of i think yeah yeah foreshadowing yeah okay so the foreshadowing uh, I, I just thought that was ironic foreshadowing. I guess it is semi-ironic here, isn't it? But yeah, the foreshadowing generally, whether or not it's ironic, uh, is just it's just really well tied together. It all makes sense. Uh, I've got to give it a nine for the plot. The cleverness here of putting the finished show first and then watching it unravel. Because a pedestrian approach might have been to do it the other way around, right? And then it would have yeah. felt a bit like a documentary about a fake thing, which would have felt yes. very odd. So... Genius, in a sense, to put it this way around. As I say, the only bit that I didn't like in the plot was the the fourth human pyramid at the end. Can I can I forgive them that? Yeah, I suppose. I'll give it an eight point five. I see eight point five. Good. Uh, how about the comedy? Was this a funny movie? It was for me. It's a p- particular uh, brand of Japanese comedy. Uh, it works for me. I loved it. Eight. I don't know that it's like a real funny funny. I mean, it is light-hearted, uh, but it's plenty of like serious drama as well, you know, and tension about whether or not I'm going to pull it off, isn't there? But yeah, it certainly made me giggle. So uh, I'll give it a seven for comedy. Yeah. So what I meant was, I was trying to say that that foreshadowing wasn't like ham wave or or what's the term lampshading necessarily, was it? It just everything. Well, it might have been what it was, but it just kind of just fitted in really well. It was just for it so plausible, is what I was sure. Trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, belatedly. Okay. Yeah, uh, I don't know for a fourth category. Uh, how about Russian Doll Metaverse? Yeah, <laughs> this. I mean, this is clever, what, isn't what it? What about its metasticity? Did how like, was it very meta for you? Did did the meta work, or was it just like, oh gosh, that's a bit too much for me? It wasn't at all. I, it worked. Yeah, uh, definitely a definite eight there for uh, for the, the Russian Doll. You know, the Hulk. You know, the 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 the. The plot of the Hulk of the plot breaks through several walls, and you think that's the last wall it's going to break through, and then another fourth wall is broken. I loved it. It's just, yeah, it's got to be an eight for me. Overall, this is a great recommendation for someone who wants to maybe watch a horror movie, but they don't like horror movies. It might cure you of the fact that you, you know, you 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 approaching horror movies as visceral entertainment rather as something to step away from, just appreciate. Great for all the family. So I'm going to give it... um, I'll give it a nine, I think. 
Yeah, in terms of CBT, this will give you a cognitive appreciation of what horror movies are. It lets you step away and see it with your third eye kind of thing. Uh, beyond that, it's a brilliant movie. Unbelievable that they've done it on this budget. Uh, I have to, therefore, give it a 9.5. I think it might be the highest score I've ever given. It's really amazing. I was, yeah, I was thunderstruck by this. I was, it shook me to my foundations. I couldn't believe that they made such a good movie. A thorough, thorough recommend from me. Okay, so, uh, well, how do we follow that, Paul? We, we probably don't, let's face it. More horror. It's, it's, it's Halloween season. I've been, you know, looking at white woman Instagram. Well, last week, uh, listen, last week you had said we were going to watch a Neil Breen film, but I looked up the price of Twisted yeah. Pear, and I thought, I had said that under protest with a gun that you held to my head, Rich. See, I know what I'm getting with a Neil Breen movie, Kay. I've, I've got a pretty good idea. <laughs> I've never seen one, but it seems to be dis- disconnecting nonsense. Anyway, sorry, go on. What, what do you do with, what do you see well, with Neil Breen? You know, imagine the vanity project of a septuagenarian, you know, auteur, who's starring <laughs> twice. He's doing two roles in his own film that he's also directing and written. Wow. But I'm not prepared. I love septuagenarians that do that. I've, I've, I've been following some guys like, here's my new adventure. <laughs> it's the latest electric scooter, but I, it's a two-inch front wheel. It's going to change electric scooters. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's got this electric scooter with a, with a tiny two-inch kind of like, you know, uh, sub-shopping cart size, kind of seti pasta <laughs> uh, size wheel on the front. Love him. Love him but bits. I'm not prepared. Go fund him if you want to. Yes, this is it. I'm not prepared to go fund me on Neil Breen's movie to the tune of like seven or eight pounds, I don't think. Yeah. One pound sure. ninety nine, definitely. Okay. So and it's not uh, a horror movie. So so yeah, change your yeah, plan. It is yeah. a change of plan, yeah. So it's not a horror movie. So let's instead choose one that is, Paul. You had a suggestion that I I'm going I did, yeah. Um you know, on my Netflix little saves, I I put something away. Uh it's I came by, okay, from twenty either twenty one or twenty two, I'm not quite sure which year. Very recent, on Netflix, free to view, lots of recommends for that reason alone. Uh and it's about, you know, some sort of spray can artist, a Banksy style guy who decides to break into not saying Banksy would, but uh, a guy who decides to break into a house in London, uh, and discovers all kinds of So the terror. name of the movie again, just so let me get this clear. The name of the movie is I Came I By. I Came sure By. Okay, hope hope it is. It just sounds like part of a sentence to me, but... In the meantime, get out your spice cinema lattes, go onto White Woman Instagram, and check out all those amazing pumpkins. <laughs> yeah. It's not so, quite Halloween yet. That's a reference to the song White Woman Instagram. I'm not, I'm not disparaging white women. <laughs> it sounds like you are. Until the next time. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the song, I think, might be in a certain sort of way. No, it's just observing that, you know, there's a certain demographic of people that really like cinnamon lattes from Starbucks and really like, you know, growing pumpkins. Paul, are you editing this episode okay. or am I? In other words, is this section going to make it in or not? <laughs> well, we're... Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to discuss that okay. afterwards. Until the next time, uh, let's say goodbye. Bye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one.